So a couple of weeks ago, I started on a project that my wife and I had been planning since even before we arrived to our new house. In case you're not familiar with who I am, I'm Joel. I came here from California, and uh, I'm so excited to be here at Keystone. So before we got into our new house, we planned on this project. We were going to put a barn door in front of our bathroom. Now, the barn door came a little bit unfinished, so there was going to be some finishing work involved with getting this door ready to hang. So we went to the hardware store, and we picked up some stain, we picked up some polyurethane, got a brush, some rags, a drop cloth. I mean, we were, we were set. I had watched some DIY videos, so I was pretty confident that I knew what I was going to do and how to do this. And they even said, you know, this is only going to take probably a weekend for you to get done. So I was like, man, this is going to be great. I'm going to love this. It's going to turn out fantastic. I love it. So I started. And I realized very quickly that this was not going to be an easy task. So I got everything going. I put the stain on the door. It was going on easily and smoothly. I thought, man, this is going to be easier than I thought. And then three hours went by, and that was the first coat of stain on one side of the door. That wasn't even the other side of the door. So I flipped it over, and I quickly discovered that this is going to take much longer than a day or two. Then I started working on the polyurethane, and that took even longer. I got one coat of the polyurethane on the door, and it took pretty much like three or four hours just on one side. And that's one coat on one side. So I thought, this is not going to be a weekend project. It's going to take way longer than I anticipated. And it did. With all the stuff that was going on, it literally took about a week to get that door just stained and sealed. Not to mention hung up on the wall, which took another day of trying to figure things out. So after all these setbacks and all these issues that we encountered coming on, we finally put the last piece on the door. We screwed in the last screw and we hung the door up in the space. And I just stood back there. I was like, whoa. I was overwhelmed with the sense of accomplishment. Not that it came out great, but that it was done. And I hung it up in the space, and it looked great, and it, and it rolled back and forth, and it didn't move after I rolled it. It didn't roll one side or the other. It stopped when it was supposed to, and it rolled where it was supposed to. I was so excited about this. I had this incredible sense of accomplishment. I mean, look at this. It's incredible. It was such a difficult thing for me to do. I literally stood there, no joke, for about an hour, just looking at the door, staring at it, thinking through all that I had gone through to get this door done and what it took. And now every day that I walk by that door, I stop and look at it, and I'm remembering in my mind every minute of work that it took and being overwhelmed with gratefulness that it was done, that it was finished, accomplished, Man, isn't that such a great feeling? I'm sure each of us have a story in our life where we set out to do something that was significant and we accomplished it. Whether it's just simply a, 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 a drawing that we are composing for our parents or a difficult test or test that we have completed or maybe a lengthy paper that we had written or finishing a grade or graduating from high school or college, or maybe winning a medal or a championship or even just an important game or finishing a really difficult work project or a house project or a yard project. 
Maybe it's something even more significant, like harvesting a crop or having a baby or finalizing an adoption. Whatever it is in our life, we get this sense of accomplishment when it's finished. When we are done, even if it's just finishing a long day of work with running errands and doing laundry or a difficult work week, when we're done with it, we have this sense of accomplishment where we can sit back and we can rest for a moment. And we can celebrate what we've accomplished. In a much bigger, significant, eternal, and life-changing way, Jesus accomplished the greatest work ever done when he defeated the power of sin and death on the cross for us. As he was hanging there on the cross, he spoke out one incredible word that set in motion a plan and a work that was finished for us that stretches even to today. Jesus said, it is finished. If you are new with us, we are in a series called The Last Words of Jesus, where we're looking at Jesus's final comments on the cross as he hung there dying in our place. Now the words of this man as he died are so important for us because they set the foundation for how our relationship with God begins and how it works itself out in our everyday lives. And if you have missed any of those messages, I would encourage you to go back to our website, find and listen to those messages, or watch them. They are so instrumental in learning about our relationship with God. This morning, we're going to look at one of the last phrases that Jesus spoke on the cross. Jesus is going to say, it is finished. And we're going to look at what those words actually mean. What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? Here's what we're going to discover today. Here's the big idea. We are free to rest, celebrate, and live because of the finished work of Christ for us. We are free to rest, celebrate, and live because of the finished work of Christ for us. If you have your Bible with you right here or on your phone. I would encourage you to turn to the book of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 28 through 30. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. Give you a second to find your way there. John tells us this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there as they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? Uh, I think he said it maybe a little bit stronger and louder than that. When Jesus had finished and received it, he said, And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. When Jesus says, it is finished, I'm I'm trying to think through what exactly is going on here. What did Jesus finish? What was he referring to when he said, it is finished? The first thing that comes to my mind is the, the physical suffering of Jesus. As he's sitting there on the cross, I can just imagine that all this is coming to an end, and he could not be more 
ecstatic that it was finally done. In my mind, it, it first races there to the suffering of Jesus saying it is done. I mean, if you were to think about this, we would probably be in the same boat saying, man, I'm so thankful it is done. Think of what Jesus had to endure. He hadn't slept for over 28 hours. He had been mocked, accused in a false trial. He was beaten with fists, spit on. He was flogged, whipped 39 times with a whip, a horrific whip that had nine leather tongs studded with broken glass, bones, and rocks, and lead balls at the tip that every time would hit his back would rip off skin and tissue off his chest as well. They smashed a crown of thorns into his head and beat it with rods. They put a robe on him, and when it had dried, ripped it off his back. He had to carry his heavy cross beam of the cross out of the city and up a hill until he was unable to carry it anymore, and someone else did it for him. Then they laid him, and they nailed his hands to that cross, and they lifted him up. And he hung there in such a way that if he was hanging down, he would be feeling immense pain in his hands and asphyxiation in his chest, couldn't breathe. And to get a breath, he would have to lift himself up by pressing his feet on the nail through his feet and scraping off all that skin off his back as he slowly inches way up the cross beam to get a breath. All of this massive amount of pain. I mean, I can't even, I can't even fathom reading it. How, how could I see this in person? The prophet Isaiah, he pictured this scene and he said this, many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Man, when I think about the words, it is finished, my mind races to Jesus hanging on the cross, experiencing this incredible pain and suffering and being able to say, it's done. It's all over. Thank God it's done. My mind would think that first, but I don't think that that's what John is referring to in this passage. When Jesus says that, as difficult and as hard as that suffering was, that's not what Jesus is referring to in that moment of, it is finished. The word that John uses here is to telestai, and it comes from the Greek word teleo, that's what John was writing in. And when he wrote this, that word means accomplished. It means to set out and accomplish a personal task. But when it is in a religious context, it means that you have fulfilled your religious obligations. So what John is trying to, to come across by saying is this. When Jesus spoke these, he's talking about finishing a plan, accomplishing a task that he had. So when Jesus says, it is finished, he's referring to something far more than just the physical suffering. In fact, earlier on in his ministry, this is what he said. I have brought you glory on earth by completing that same word, finishing the work you gave me to do. This leads me to press beyond the physical suffering of Jesus and think there's something greater, a big, massive plan that God has in place that Jesus is somehow accomplishing. And that's what I think that is referred to here, that when Jesus says it is finished, he's meaning the plan of God is finished. 
The plan of God is finished. Now, this is not just some fly by the seat of your pants plan. It's not a backup plan. God wasn't sitting up in heaven saying, oh no, Jesus is, is being crucified. Oh, let's think of a way to use this to accomplish my plan. This plan that God has set in motion, it stretches back all the way to and through creation. God set this in, in motion way beyond time. In fact, Peter, when he got up and he preached his message to the Jewish people in Jerusalem after Jesus had ascended, he said this to the people that were gathered, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Paul also captured this thought when he said in Galatians chapter four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we could receive the adoption of sons. What he's saying is that somehow along the way, this was God's plan. And this was God's plan all the way from the beginning. And what I would love to do with you this morning is to take you through a journey to see how did God's plan unfold over time? How was this God's big idea for Jesus to accomplish this work on our behalf. It all starts back at the beginning. When God created this world, he created this world beautifully, perfectly, wonderfully. There's nothing wrong with this world. It was glorious. I can't imagine what that scene was like to be in a world that had no sin, no disease, no decay. But that's how God created it. But Satan came in and destroyed it. Sin sent it into decay and destruction. And from the beginning, we see the greatest conflict of history start. The conflict between the evil of Satan and the mind and the love of God. Where Satan continually tried to overthrow God's plan. In fact, right from the beginning, Satan, who was created by God, thought to himself as he's looking at the pre-existent Jesus Christ, I want to reign. I want to rule. I want to be first. So he set out to try to be that. And his first task was to try to overthrow God. And he couldn't take God off the throne. God threw him out of heaven along with a third of the angels. So Satan's second plan was to take the crown of God's creation, human beings who he created in his own image and try to destroy the people that God made, thwart God's plan. So he came and he deceived Eve and he got Eve and Adam to eat the forbidden fruit. And when God came to visit them later after they had done that, Asked where they were, they came out of hiding, having made clothes of leaves. And he looked at them and said, no, this will not do. What human hands can make will not do. So God took an animal, an animal that he had just created, and he brought it in front of Adam and Eve, and he killed the animal. And he took the skin from that animal and clothed Adam and Eve, covering their sinfulness and their shame and their nakedness. I often think about what Adam was thinking and experiencing as he saw this animal's life slip away and the ground soak up the blood from that animal and to see the consequence of his sin as he sees the first death 
as a result of sin take place in front of him. Before God was done in that moment, he turned to Satan and he said, you will crawl on your belly for the rest of your days. But beyond that, he said, the seed of this woman will come. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. In some way, God was telling them right from the beginning, somebody was going to come that Satan would one day try to hurt, but that person would one day crush the power of Satan. And what God was referring to was the day that Jesus would come and crush his head. The human race continued to grow and became more numerous. And as the human race grew, so did sinfulness and depravity. So much so that the world became filled with violence and bloodshed, murder and blasphemy. And God said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with this world. And he, he looked to try to find one person who could still follow him. And he found one man on the entire earth who still followed him. And his name was Noah. God took Noah and saved Noah and his family by putting him into an ark along with the animals he wanted to save. And he rained down his judgment on the earth and destroyed the world with the universal flood. And only Noah and his family were saved because they were in the ark of safety. And God was giving us this incredible picture in that moment to say, one day, one is coming who will be your ark of safety. And all those who are in Jesus Christ will be saved from my judgment. As God's wrath falls in torrential downpours on every human being, only those who are in Christ are covered, protected from that judgment, cared for under the cross of Christ. Jesus was that person and God was pointing forward to that moment. So the sons of Noah became the fathers of the nations and everyone gathered together in one place and God said, this will not do. And he scattered them across the world, giving them different languages so that they could scatter and fill like he asked and wanted. And out of all the nations of the earth, God chose one family to be the one group of people he would send the promised one through. And it was Abraham. The only problem is that Abraham had no children. He was 99 years old. His wife was 90. They had no kids. And a big promise from God that one day your descendants will be as numerous as the, sky, the stars in the sky or the sand on the sea. Abraham's like, how? Oh, I, I have no kids. But in a miracle of God, Sarah was able to conceive. And they brought forth a son. They named him Isaac. And Isaac became that seed, that person who would one day bring the Messiah in. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. 10 of them hated their brother, Joseph, so much so they sold him into slavery. The slave traders took him into Egypt through a series of events only God could orchestrate. God moved him to a position of power and authority as the prime minister of Egypt, and he saved the world of the time from a famine, including his own family. His whole family moved down and stayed with him in Egypt. 400 years go by, that nation is now huge. Millions of people now compose the people of Israel. Pharaoh looked at them and said, this is too many people. They will overthrow us. So he enslaved them, put them into bondage. 
And after troubles and suffering for many years, God said, it's time, I'm going to take you out. And in order to do that, he sent 10 plagues to get Pharaoh ready to release them, the last of which was very important. He was going to send the angel of death throughout the land of Egypt, and that angel would kill the firstborn son of every family and the firstborn male animal of that household as well, unless that family took a perfect lamb that had no blemish, kill that lamb, take its blood, and put it on the doorposts of the door. And when the angel of death would come and see the blood on the door, he would pass over that house. And the people of Israel to this day celebrate Passover as the time that God passed over, did not mete out judgment on them because of the blood of the lamb. And that pointed forward to the one day that Jesus would come and he would be that one person, that one lamb who would come and be sacrificed on our behalf. And when God sees the blood of Jesus that was shed for us, he passes over our sin and does not give us his judgment, but saves us instead. An amazing picture of God's plan for us. The same story goes on a little bit later. Later on, this picture was given again, maybe a little less known story. David, who was one of the kings of Israel, the greatest king, he had been told by God, do not number the people. Do not see how big your kingdom is. Because I don't want you to get so full of pride thinking that you have built this and your protection comes with how big of an army you have and how big of a, of a nation you have. But he did it anyways. And God said, because you have disobeyed me, I'm going to punish you, but I'm going to give you a choice. You get to choose between seven years of famine, three months of being pursued and overrun by your enemies, or three days of pestilence. And David said, I'll choose the three days of pestilence. And he begged for God's mercy. The next morning he woke up and he saw the angel of death ready to pounce on the people of his kingdom. And he fell down and he begged God, please, only on my house, please meet out this judgment just on my house. And God said, I want you to take a lamb to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice the lamb there. And David did that. And when he sacrificed the lamb, God delayed and did not judge the people. The one was killed so the many could be forgiven. That's very much what happened on Mount Moriah earlier with Abraham's son, Isaac, who was also offered up there. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son to show that he would be willing to do whatever it took to obey God. And as Adam, or Abraham raised the knife to sacrifice his son, God stayed his hand and said, no, there's a, a lamb over here. Use this instead. All these pictures are pointing to the one Jesus, who would come and he would rescue us from our sin. This is an incredible principle. As the people of God grew, the nation of Israel grew, they left Egypt and they were received, or they received the plan of God, the, the law, the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, the civil law, the ceremonial law. And what this was meant to do was to show that this was a nation set apart from God. This is a nation to show that this is what it looks like when the one true God rules and governs a nation. It was to show them the cost of what it took, 
when you disobeyed that law. And so if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see chapter after chapter after chapter, chapter of, of animals being sacrificed, killed on behalf of the people so that they could be forgiven of their sin. And then God set up one special day when all the sins would be forgiven. It would be called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, they would take a lamb, perfect year-old lamb, and then the high priest would come and lay his hand on that lamb and transfer all the sin of the people onto that lamb. And then they would kill that lamb in the presence of all the people, take the blood of it, into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to show that that lamb had paid for the sin of the people. Showing forward to the time when Jesus would come and he would be that one lamb who would be sacrificed, killed in the presence of all the people whose blood was shed to forgive us of all of our sin. It is amazing to see how all of these pictures are coming to show Jesus But the people of Israel, they're stubborn. They didn't listen. They didn't obey. They wanted further and further away from God. They didn't listen to him. And so God said, I'm going to send my prophets to tell you, to warn you, that if you keep going this way, you will be destroyed. And sure enough, they didn't listen. They were destroyed by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But when they were there, God sent prophets And they said, there's going to be coming a day. You're going to come back to the land. God is going to do a new thing. It's going to be amazing. Instead of this old covenant that was here filled with all the sacrificial system, I'm going to start a new covenant with you. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. And I'm going to give you this desire to obey me, to follow me completely and wholly. It's going to be a new thing. But Isaiah showed us that this is not going to come like we expected. It's not going to come through a conquering king. It's going to come through a suffering servant. It's going to come from one person who would take on himself all of our sin, who would die in our place. And he wrote all this in the 53rd chapter of his book. If you have time, read that chapter, Isaiah 53. It'll change your life to hear what God prophesied through Isaiah would take place with Jesus. God said, I'm going to do something brand new, and I'm going to send him. And the prophet Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, says, look, he's coming. I'm going to send my messenger before you. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for eagerly is surely coming. 400 years passed, no message from God, no promise to share it. The world saw its conquer through Alexander the Great, then the Roman Empire. It set the stage for the entire world set up with one language and one culture. And then when Augustus Caesar was the Roman emperor, God said, it's time. And he sent Jesus into this world. But Jesus was born under the shadow of the cross. The angel told Joseph when he was telling him to marry Mary, that sounded weird, When he was talking to Joseph, he said, she's going to bring forth a son and you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. When Jesus started his ministry, it was started under the shadow of the cross. When he went to John to be baptized to start his ministry, John looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every Jewish person that was there would have known what that meant because they had seen lambs killed day after day after day to take away their sin. And now John was pointing to this one who would take away the sin of the world. 
As Jesus began and talked through his ministry, he always shared about the fact that he was going to die on their behalf. Even when he was transfigured, when he let his disciples see his true glory as God, when he was talking with Moses and Elijah, what did he talk about? His death. What would happen to him in Jerusalem very shortly? When he was anointed with oil by Mary, Jesus said it was to signify and prepare him for his burial. When Greek people from far away came to see Jesus, Jesus said, this is just to show that when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus was always talking about his plan, the plan of God to come and to die on our behalf. So when he cries out from the cross, it is finished. He is talking about the whole plan. The plan that stretches back way throughout of time, the beginning of time and unfolds over thousands of years. And Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, says, it's finished. All of it. When I set the stage from long ago saying, I'll do it. I'll come and I'll take the place. I will purchase Adam's lost and sinful race. I'll do it. And now he's at the end of his life on the cross and he says, it is finished. The plan of God was done. Man, what an amazing feeling. I remember when, when I started seminary, I sat with my academic advisor, Jim George, and he sat me down and he said, okay, let's go through this. And he talked to me, said, this is what your next four years are going to look like. He told me the classes I was going to take. He told me how many units I needed to take every single semester. He told me how long it would take, how, uh, what I would learn along the way, and when I would accomplish it. I was like, there's no way. But he said, this is, if we follow this plan, this is what's going to happen. Four years later, I was standing there on the stage and I received my degree. And I was like, this is a surreal moment to look back and think, this is what we planned for four years and now it's done exactly as we said? It was an incredible feeling of relief because I was done with writing papers and joy because it was done and finished. But what would Jesus have been feeling in this moment to know that thousands of years in the making was now completed, finished, done? Amazing. Can I take just a quick side note? When I think about this aspect of Jesus and how all this was God's plan, it reminds me that God knows. God knows our lives. That whatever we're going through this moment, whatever suffering we're enduring, whatever challenges we're facing, God knows them. And he has a plan for them and through them. And he has said, I have something in store for your life that's going to be amazing. I have called you to myself and I have given you new life. And I began a work in you. And he says, the work that I began in you, I will complete. We can have confidence and rest in God's plan, not just for Jesus, but for our lives as well. I see in this not just that the plan of God was finished, but that the work that he had to do in it was accomplished as well. The work of salvation is finished. Jesus, near the end of his ministry, he said, when he knew that his time had come, he set his face for Jerusalem. 
Jesus knew that he was going to endure the cross and the pain and the suffering that was there. He would face God's judgment and he went towards it instead of running from it because he knew this is why he had come. This was the plan that he had. This was the work he had been set out to do. This was the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry, to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. And while he was hanging there on the cross, looking like a pathetic, wasted victim, in a magnanimous fashion, he was saying, I am conquering sin and death for you. You see, in the death of Christ, the law of God was fulfilled. Everything that God had set in motion to say, if you do this, you will be right with me, but none of us ever can fill God, fulfill God's law perfectly. But Jesus says, I did it. The law of God was fulfilled. In the death of Christ, the justice of God was vindicated. God cannot just forgive sin without consequence. People have been an affront to God. The sinfulness that we have is terrible in God's sight. God cannot just look away and he cannot just forgive it. He has to punish it. So God can be just and good because Jesus died in our place. And in that moment, the wrath of God was satisfied. God's anger, his burning hatred against sin that would be meted out on each one of us was poured out on Jesus and he absorbed all of it for us and satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. And the love of God was displayed. God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should never perish. But what? Just checking if you're awake. Everlasting life. As Jesus hung there bearing the weight of the cross and the sin that we had, he eliminated our need and our inability to do anything to contribute to our salvation. It's all done. It's all finished. Everything is done. You know, one of the greatest struggles that people have today is credit card debt and student loan debt. Somewhere along the way, people start saying, I, I can't pay for this right now, I'll just charge it, and they continue to keep doing it or take out more loans, and pretty soon the debt starts to accumulate and it becomes greater than they thought, and it's unmanageable, and it becomes unbearable. In fact, one of the leading causes of stress and anxiety in today's world is financial difficulty and debt. But imagine if you were here today and you were in immense amounts of debt and somebody came up to you and said, hey, I know, I know the financial difficulty you're in. I know the debt that you have and I know that you'll never be able to pay it, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to pay every single cent of that debt and not just for this debt. It's going to go forward. So every single thing that you buy in the future, every debt that you accrue in the future, I'm paying for that too. What a sense of relief that would give you, wouldn't it? A sense of peace and joy that you could experience because you don't have this weight hanging over you anymore. But that's exactly what Paul said takes place in our lives when he wrote to the Colossian believers. He said this, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Listen to this. 
he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He is taking it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. On the cross, Jesus paid for every sin that you have ever committed and ever will. Your debt has been paid in full. That's what we celebrate when we come to communion. That's what we celebrate when we have these elements. The who, the what, and the why of communion is right here. Shortly before this moment when Jesus was having a dinner with his disciples, he took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this or eat this in remembrance of me. He had spoken similarly earlier on in his ministry in John chapter 4. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. So when Jesus was sitting there with his disciples and he gave them his, his bread and saying, this is my body which is broken for you, he is signifying your soul's hunger will be quenched, satisfied by me and my sacrifice for you. My body was broken so yours could be healed. So when we take the bread, if you guys have them together, let's pull those out. When we take this bread, we are to eat it thinking of God's sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus' broken body for us so that we could be healed. Let's take it together. After the dinner, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people in agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. In the same chapter, John chapter four, Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman. He said, anyone who drinks this water at this well will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then you have experienced the satisfaction of Jesus, that he and he alone can quench your thirst in your soul. When Jesus died on the cross, he poured out his blood so that we could be forgiven and satisfied. Let's drink the cup together. Do you know what we do when we do this? We share and declare that what Jesus did is enough. What Jesus did is enough. There's nothing else that could or can be done. We cannot add to it or take away from it. God has finished the work of salvation for us through Jesus Christ. It is finished. Can I leave you with one final thought before we close? As I mentioned, the word it is finished, the words it is finished comes from the one Greek word to telestai. I'm not going to give you a Greek lesson, but what is super important about this is that this word is in what is called the perfect tense. I want to tell you why that's so super cool for this. It signifies an event that took place at some point in the past, and it has effects that continue all the way through the present. The results never change. 
So when he is saying it is finished, the plan of God is finished, the work of salvation is finished, it was done at a moment in history, but the result of that is now continuing in the future. It never will stop being finished. It will never stop being enough. What Jesus did on the cross will always be enough. So when your self-sufficiency and your self-effort come creeping in and are tempting you to think that your discipleship effort, your prayer life, your devotional time has anything to contribute to your salvation, hear Jesus say, it is finished. It is done. You are forgiven forever. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that no one can boast about it. When guilt over our sin comes raging over us because of what we have done or what we're caught up in now, and we are filled with uncertainty, Jesus says, it is finished. It is done. It is forgotten forever. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When doubt comes in, comes crashing in our lives, making us wonder if we are okay with God, that somehow along the way our relationship with God has has been broken, that we have lost our salvation somehow, we need to hear Jesus say, It is finished. It is done. You are mine forever. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my father's hand. When we are filled with this doubt, thinking that we are alone, that we're forgotten by God, that somehow his love for us has ceased or been diminished. We need to hear from Jesus, it is finished. It is done. You are loved forever. For God displayed his great love for us in this. He sent Jesus Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? who dares accuse us, whom God has chosen for his own. No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. 
despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is finished. God, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your incredible plan for our lives, for this world that you would send Jesus for us, knowing we can never restore that broken relationship with you. We can never do enough to satisfy your requirements. We can never pay for our sin. Jesus, thank you for coming, for taking this task for willingly going to the cross, bearing the shame and the sorrow and the sin of this world for me. Thank you for dying in our place and finishing the work so that we, those who trust in you alone, can rest, can celebrate, can live in your finished work for us. Thank you. Amen.